Welcome to the second episode of The Brief in 2020. I am your guest host, Camilla Darbo, MIPRA Strategy Board Member and Managing Director at APCO Worldwide Dubai. Today, I am honored and excited to be chatting to Marjorie Krauss. She is the founder and executive chair at APCO Worldwide, and we're going to be talking about the challenges and opportunities as women leaders in PR as we mark International Women's Day 2020. So for many of you listening, Marjorie probably needs no introduction. Um, Since founding APCO Worldwide in 1984, she has transformed it into one of the world's leading advisory and advocacy communications consultancies. Not only that, but she's the leading female um, executive in her field of running one of the largest agencies in this type in the globe. To celebrate 35 years, Marjorie has published her first book, which is entitled Roots and Wings. And we're very excited to have her here to share with us her story and why she decided to publish this book here and now. So why don't I start off with that, Marjorie? I'd love to ask you the question, why did you write this book? Well, it was coerced into writing the book by, by a, actually by a client. Uh, no, but, um, you know, I think after 35 years and just as you reflect on your career, you think about a lot of different things, and there's a lot you want to share. And, um, and I think my, with the, I wasn't joking, with the spurring of my uh, friend Phyllis Piano, Um, I had this idea that one of the things that I learned over time is that women, especially women of kind of my older generation here, um, we're taught that in the beginning that you really don't talk about family and and what influence that has on your work. And I felt like um, I had a lot to say about that, being the mother of three and the grandmother of nine, um, that my family has always been an important part of my life and has been my support system and has influenced the way in which I approach work. And I learned so much from doing that that influenced the way I run the company and built the company that I kind of owed it um, to the next generation coming along to share that. So they had kind of permission to talk and uh, about this and to celebrate being a woman and celebrate the joys of motherhood and, and not look at it as something you kind of sweep under the carpet at work. And it doesn't make you any less professional to talk about these things. And so that's why I wrote the book. Um, I really felt I had something to say about this. I definitely was credible because <laughs> I lived it. Um, and it just kind of came from the heart. And so, like you said, you t- focus on motherhood there and um, being a woman in the business. So tell us a bit about the title. How did you come up? What is Roots and Wings? What does that mean? So this has been um, very fundamental to the kind of link be- for me between work and life. Um, when my children were growing up, I had a sign uh, that was, um, you know, in the in in a, um, wasn't in the bedroom, but, you know, in the house, that said um, there are only two lasting things of value you give your children. 
One is roots and the other is wings. And that always kind of stuck with me because my parents kind of treated us like that, that we had a lot of freedom, but we also had responsibility and we knew what was expected of us. And so this idea that what you give your children are values and then you give them the ability to be braced by those values so they can fly and they know right from wrong and they know what's right in the world and um, and then you can give them a lot of freedom. And you know, a lot of people ask me over time, how do you go from one office to like 35 offices and celebrate the same culture and as in the firm, no matter you know if you have one nationality or, or 60, whatever we have now, 60, 65 nationalities in the company. And everybody seems to be bound by this common um, uh, desire to be together and to work in the same way. And I started to think about how that related back to, where did that come from? And it really came from the same notion that um, we have a strong value system at APCA, we have a strong culture, and then we enable entrepreneurs to flourish in their home markets. And I think this idea of roots and wings just naturally for me translated from it was, uh, I didn't even think about it because it was so logical that um, you take it from, it's, it's, I learned it in motherhood, but it definitely translated into business. It's great that you talk about culture and values because I think that is such a pivotal thing. And now more and more, as we know from research, from through from the Gen Z, through up, how important culture and values are. So when you say about roots, where did those roots come from? Where in your childhood, what value system was created where it came through into your adult life? So um, I'm first-generation American. Um, my parents were immigrants. Um, my parents were both born in Poland, although my mother was raised in Cuba. She doesn't, neither, my father came to the U.S. when he was a year old, so neither of them really remember or remembered, since they're both gone now, uh, living there. But um, they did come with a strong you know, work ethic and a desire to have a better life for their own kids. And uh, my mother had the additional, I guess, uh, experience of growing up in yet another culture in Cuba, because she didn't come to the U.S. till she was married. And, um, and so, you know, I think part of this came from just a very strong notion that um, you, you know, you, um, you, you build your life on certain common values. And then we lived in this very small town in New Jersey. And my father's uh, business was um, kind of a general store. Um, it was the town's department store, I guess you'd say. And uh, we, I, it was my father's business, and I never thought of my mother as a working mother. But in fact, we all worked in the store. From uh, The store was open six days a week, 12 hours a day. And uh, we all took turns, and we, um, well, we as kids worked in that store till from the time we could see over the counter. And we uh, worked on c with customers, and we... Uh, learned how we learned some accounting from you know um, closing out the registers and all of that and you know it was interesting because it was a small town and you know I I watched my father who was very well respected in this town um, 
take people in who didn't have um, the money to pay for an engagement ring and give them credit on a handshake and you know just um, just the relationships that were built um, through that store it became kind of the center of the community and you know it, it just always stuck with me how important those relationships were and you know many years later I because it was such a small town. I go back uh, because I have friends from kindergarten and first grade, believe it or not, because uh, the school was K through 12 in one building. So we were all very close and together a long time. And I have people, the same person comes up to me and says, you know, I couldn't have gotten married if it wasn't for your father. And, um, and I said, how's that? And they said, well, and he tells me the story about the engagement ring. That's how I know the story. Um, and, you know, so you realize that these things are meaningful throughout life, and you have to pay attention to, um, to those uh, relationships. And I think we live in a very transactional world right now, and we sometimes forget that. I think, as you say, what that demonstrates is that real will- willingness to share and trust and, and, and collaborate and have a community. And I think, as you said, you've built this amazing community across the world of clients. Um, but how did you go from this tiny little village um, with school in one building to then what were the wings? What made you decide to get out and, and start a career? So I never... I mean, I guess intuitively, my parents always had these big dreams for me, but I never really thought about work in that sense. Um, and, you know, it was very traditional time, right? Women grew up to be teachers and nurses, and, you know, um, I, I just, but I also was never a very traditionalist. But what really drove me was something that was a sad moment in my life. And um, I, I was, um, uh, my, you know, I said my mother was from Cuba. Well, her, my mother was the oldest of four, and her youngest brother, Sam, um, was closer in age to me. And he was like my older brother. He was uh, seven years older than I was. And he uh, came to live with us because uh, of a health issue. And, um, and so he and I were very close. And when he was 21 and the coolest guy on campus, um, and I was 14, uh, he developed cancer. And it was um, uh, a, a really horrible thing because it was before MRIs and the cancer was in his spine. And it meant he had a very short time to live. And it um, was one of those gut-punching moments in life that just at that age, you know, was so impossible to understand. And I kind of sat with him every day for the next five months at some point until he died. And um, I learned a lot from that. And I kind of promised myself that if I died at 21, I I never wanted to have any regrets. So, um, you know, I was going to do He's going to live my life without any boundaries and obviously value boundaries, but, you know, uh, aspirational boundaries. And the doctor who took care of my uncle um, was an Australian, uh, Austrian uh, radiologist, um, neurologist. And, um, and when he got ready to go back, he talked to my parents about me going there to be an au pair with, um, for his children because he was moving back to the States and he wanted them to learn to speak English. And, um, and so at age 16, I packed up and I went to Europe by myself. 
and made my way to Austria and spent a summer uh, in Klagenfurt, Austria. And, um, and I had a cruel joke played on me because these wonderful little kids, Daisy, Dahlia, and Magda, um, I taught them English, but they, and they taught me German, I thought. It only it turned out to be German baby talk. So I'd go out to these cafes, meet these guys, and talk in German baby talk. <laughs> so everybody would be laughing at me, and I'd never quite understood why until they told me. Um, but in any event, that's, that, was, uh, that was an experience that kind of changed my life because, um, you know, when you're on your own like that and you experience all these cultures, and it was a very naive time, too. Aside from my age, you know, the world was very different. Because I think about it now, and would I let my would I've let my kids do this? Sixteen-year-olds, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Going around your my grandchildren, no. <laughs> um, but you know, I went home with people. I I met people. I you know, you trust people, and it was it was remarkable. And you realize how much there is in the world, and how um, and how much there is to do. And I think that was a very liberating moment. And so after your trip to Austria and that experience, you came back to America. And I read in the book that you decided to quit high school early and go straight to college. Tell us a bit about that and, how, and why you made that decision. Well, as I said before, my school was K through 12, kindergarten through 12th grade in one building. Um, so... In fact, my second grade teacher taught my father, my uncle, my aunt, my oh brother, my me. You get the picture. Miss um, Delaney. Um, so the, the, the basement was the junior high. The first floor was the elementary school, and the top floor was the high school. And, um, and so by the time I was a junior, um, you know, this town was a, um, a mining and farm town, and you know, a lot of the people, even though it was probably an hour from New York City, many people had never really been to the city. And here I was coming back from this time on my own in Europe, and I just felt like I didn't want to, you know, this influence of my uncle, I didn't want to waste time, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and so I convinced my parents and um, that if I applied and got accepted to three schools, um, that I could leave after my junior year and go to college, and that's what I did. And so you studied in college, um, what did you study, physics and maths, I believe, and science? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if anybody really knows this, but I started as a theater major, but I, um, in my, you know, I, I went to a school that was, um, it, it was Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, and a very good school, and because it was a smaller school, you took your um, your uh, uh, courses you had to take with majors in that field. So you were always uh, kept on your toes. And I had this wonderful political science teacher. And um, he kind of changed my, my whole view of what I wanted to do. And, um, and then at the same time, I, you know, I had met the person I ultimately married, and he was in law school in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C., so there was this convergence of interest and uh, heart, I guess you'd say, heart and head. And, um, and so I became a political science major uh, with the idea of teaching civics, because again, you know, at that time, women taught. Um, and then maybe eventually, if I had a family going to law school, that was kind of the ambition at the time. And so I, I, um, I eventually transferred and finished at American University in Washington. 
and got my master's there uh, in political science. In political science. And I think so having done that and got married and started that journey into uh, married life, I read in your book that then you actually ended up studying more and um, you didn't, you weren't just happy just sitting and being a traditional housewife. Tell us a bit about that and what, what happened in those times. So um, I had my first child. I, I guess I had just turned, I was 21. I mean, I got married when I was 20. Um, and um, it was a joy, <laughs> I say that. So about six months into that, um, I decided I would go to graduate school uh, at night and just keep my brain moving. In fact, I have some funny moments when um, I was, you know, when uh, Lisa was my oldest, would be in the crib and I'd be reading Machiavelli out loud because, um, you know, I read it with inflection and she was, you know, nine months old and far she knew I was reading a story, right? Bedtime story. Um, so I was studying and, and multitasking, I guess. Um, and then I had an opportunity to do something that I, I just couldn't turn down, and that was some people were starting this program in Washington to um, um, bring young people to Washington to learn about government and politics and use Washington as a classroom. And I had done a bit of that when I was in college, and I knew um, exactly how that would work, and that just was seemed so interesting and compelling. And so I decided that I would, you know, see if I could... Um, I, I talked to them, and lo and behold, I got a job. So now I had graduate school, a baby, and a job that was more <laughs> than full-time. And uh, my poor husband <laughs> didn't know what he had bargained for. And that's kind of how I... Where it all just, started. Yeah, that's kind of what happened. That was pretty trailblazing back then. And, I mean, I suppose you had to learn the skills of multitasking. Multi-multitasking, um, yeah. Multi-multitasking. Um, but how do you feel, I mean, if you paint a picture, when you were first starting your career, and this is before you, you started APCO as a, as a business, but how different things were to how women now are in the, in the working you know, world. Well, especially celebrating International Women's Day. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me um, fairly recently at a conference is, uh, um, you know, they had announced that, um, oh, this is a, a bit ago, but um, that the person that was the head of Yahoo, uh, Melissa Moore, that she, was, she, she had had a child um, and she had just become the CEO, right? And I sat there thinking, when I got pregnant the first time, not only wasn't the birth announced on you know global media, but I had to lie about being pregnant because you could only work for six months. Like nobody would, you know, would let you work after that. And my when I took my first job, my husband was in uh, graduate. You know, he was getting his law degree. We needed the money. I mean, I just um, so. You know, I actually worked and took in overtime, so I couldn't afford to lose my job. Um, so, I mean, that that whole business about women being pregnant and whether that's a, a scourge on society or whether it's something to celebrate, that's a big change. And the fact that, you know, we try as an employer to be very 
uh, as generous as we can with both maternal and paternal leave, and and also to um, to make sure that you know we protect the rights of those women who get pregnant, so they have a job and they advance in their careers, and they're not treated any differently, and also that we're flexible in in, in workspace. That would never have been considered before. Uh, if you were pregnant, you know, they were almost hiding you uh, because it couldn't be serious about working if you were pregnant. I mean, just they didn't go together. So as you say, with International Women's Day coming up, I think the theme for 2020 is about um, gender equality. And um, it's come on so far, such a long way. Um, how do you think in terms of when you started the business 35 years ago, um, were you one of the few women that were leading businesses back then? Yeah, I think that that was, you know, there were only a couple of us uh, in the field, in this field, that um, were in that position. Today, there's, you know, almost every major agency is headed by a woman globally, which most of these women I've been watching over time because they're, you know, younger than I am. And I like to think that we help pave, away, pave the way for that. Um, because we showed what women could grow and do. And and I think that today APCO sits as the largest majority women-owned company of its, you know, in this field. And certainly as an independent, it's the largest uh, independent uh, that's run by women. So tell us the story. What... what um what made you decide to move from you? You were working in a, in a job and then take a big leap to actually found something um, yourself. And what made you decide to do that? It was a total accident. I mean, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I was um, clever enough to say, well, I had this vision. <laughs> and I just, you know, one of the things that I've always lived by, and I hope this is um, kind of a lesson for other women, is that good things don't happen at convenient times. You know, the last thing you have to think about, just like taking this job when you start graduate school and you have a six-month-old and you're newly married and whatever, I think, you know, you have to sometimes just do what you think is in your heart and you want to do. And you can't be overthinking, well, this isn't the right time for me or whatever. It's never the right time. It's always hard. So um, I was in a job I loved, actually, because that um, the organization that I told you about, um, uh, the Close-Up Foundation, um, was very successful. You know, I helped start it. Um, I worked from the first program on bringing these students to Washington. It was very much in my bailiwick. I helped develop the curriculum. It was now in 50 states. It was very successful, 14 years into this. And um, for a lot of reasons... Um, it was noticed uh, for um, by a group of uh, partners in a law firm that Arnold and Porter that did more uh, practicing law than they did. I mean, did more project development than practicing law, and and they wanted to set up a uh, an affiliate, and um, and I, I was on their radar screen, and they kept coming after me to maybe run this affiliate. And uh, and I just turned them down because I loved what I was doing. And after about six months of, of 
I had never applied for a job, so I, I was trying to be nice. I, I could never do this unless it was totally independent. Okay. <laughs> I could never do this unless I was running it. Okay. <laughs> I ran out of things to say, and then I really started to think about what that meant, taking everything I'd learned in the not-for-profit world, which was, in essence, building another organization, even though it just wasn't for-profit, but building something from scratch and taking those skills and seeing if they were applicable in a commercial world. And I love the idea of putting people together and connecting dots and solving problems and creating opportunities. And it gave me real energy and passion. And, um, and so I thought, why not? And then um, that's kind of was the, the gem of the idea. And then uh, when I finally made the plunge and I went from running um, a staff of 200 people, I was already 38 years old, um, to the law firm, I actually needed a permission slip to get partner furniture from my office. <laughs> I thought, what have I done? Um, but we, you know, it was just me and a part-time secretary, and they didn't have um, they didn't have either a business plan or any business. So I think, you know, I thought I'm here. I'm just going to do what I think is right and uh, build something. And so uh, there was no like fu separate funding for this, so I just started doing this kind of hand-to-mouth. And, um, and then eventually we spun off from the law firm, and the rest, I guess, is history. It's history. So, yeah. Amazing. I mean, you really started from scratch. Um, I want to then move on to, actually, 35 years on, you've just written this book. And I think what's beautiful about it is it's, it's it combined together um, lessons from motherhood, but how that applies to business and how you manage to use those to grow and run this business, as you said, across 35 countries. So talk through some of those lessons that you've written about. What would you say are the kind of top three that you'd like to share with? Wow, top three. Um, well, you know, I think the framework of the Roots and Wings is important. Um, you know, I think that maybe so... Um, not that I remember every single chapter, but <laughs> I can remember what I wrote. But, um, you know, my mother always told me that um, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and I think that that probably is one of those things that there's so many times when you start your own business, and anyone out, out there who's done this will totally understand that when you start your own business, there's so many times when things can get derailed or when you are given advice that just doesn't seem right to you, but it's given to you by people who know so much more than, or you think know so much more than you do. And, um, and so if you don't have that kind of um, inner stubbornness, um, you give up more than once. I mean, there are many times that I made these big decisions, um, like even going from one office to the second office. Our second office was Moscow in 1988. So think about just walking in to that country and setting up an office and finding clients and people and, you know, the whole thing. I, you know, you make the decision, then you go and you're the leader, right? So you're out there charging ahead and then you go in the bathroom and throw up. <laughs> <laughs> so nervous, you know, so, um, the truth be known. Um, so I, I think that if you're honest with yourself, you know, unless you have that inner stubbornness and, and can, um, you know, will it to happen? Um, I don't know that it happens. 
I think it's just too easy sometimes to give up or the world is, especially as a woman, sometimes the world just doesn't work for you. And um, it, it led to things like um, some difficult times raising money or things like that, uh, which is another chapter in there called uh, No Whining. Um, <laughs> because a lot of times the temptation is to, you know, point a finger, blame others, you know, feel sorry for yourself. And, and there's no room for that if you're going to really forge ahead and try to bring other people with you. I, I read also another chapter, which I think resonated was, and you said about how um, nurturing the power of caring. And I think that's a very maternal in- instinct. And I also read that you write, handwrite um, the cards to your staff that have celebrated anniversaries. So tell me about how you bring kind of nurturing into what you do in the business. Well, it just, um, you know, I use another example in there too. Uh, that's kind of in my personal life. I'm, I'm a f- photography nut. I guess you'd say. Um, and I'm always, people who know me well know I'm always carrying my camera to private events. And uh, there are people in my family who have major events, and I get there and they, uh, I said, do you mind if I stand with a photographer and take some pictures? And they'll say, oh, you are the photographer tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, how do you know I'm going to bring my camera? They say, are you kidding? Um, but, you know, I've been known to do that. And then overnight, um, make prints, get frames, and put them like for the brunch the next day after a wedding or something like that. And the joy you get from watching people come in, and they can't believe that it's a re-celebration of the night before, that joy gives me a lot of joy. And so the idea of how you translate a, that into work, you know, as the company grew, um, you know, I was pretty personally involved with people in the beginning, and when you have people spread across the world, you don't know everybody in the same intimate way as you might have. And so the card started as a way to just acknowledge people's annual anniversary at APCO and writing a little note of thank you because I felt that it was at least recognition that even if we were, you know, 6,000 miles away or something, that somebody was paying attention to the fact that it was their anniversary. And, um, I've had some funny moments with that. There are a couple of responses I've gotten from people that just happened to come while I was doing the book, so I put them in the book. Um, But, you know, I've had... um, I had somebody actually... You know, a few people ask if I I actually write them myself. And uh, and so the staff, uh, my staff, um, has taken a few pictures and put them on our internal... A communication workplace of me writing the cards because they, you know, they've come and found me when I'm doing this and caught me out and they put them up there and said, see, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just think it's important. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not the cards. It's not the pictures. It's, um, it's a connection. So you said earlier, one of your kind of key Uh, lessons or suggestions for anyone is if there's a will there's a way to have that kind of innate stubbornness as you said to really make it happen so if you're talking to people in the PR profession that maybe you know they're in their career trying to drive their career maybe don't have children um, what kind of advice would you give them um, to really grow and keep driving forward in PR career I think everybody has to have their own sense of compass like a true north 
to understand um, what excites them, what gives them passion, what turns them on. And I think you have to drive toward that. And sometimes it comes in unexpected ways and you have to keep an open mind to opportunities. Um, but you also, I, I think you can't be mercenary about it. I mean, one of the things that I find in this profession, it's, you know, that, that the firms are pretty cutthroat. And uh, I've, never, I've never played that game in the same way. And maybe we've suffered a little bit here and there for that. Um, but I, th I think that, um, you know, we've tried to provide a nurturing environment for people, a safe environment. Not that we don't expect hard work, but that, um, you know, it's not competitive except to do a good job for each other as team teammates. And I don't know that other firms um, work that way. And, and so when um, you're choosing your career, I, I would look at the, the totality of it, not just the money and the position, I would say, what am I really going to be doing? How does this drive me toward where I want to go? Um, and am, and am, am I going to be in an environment where other people want me to be successful? And I think that those kind of questions, I don't think get asked very much because people get very enamored with uh, kind of the tangible benefits of a job. And, um, and I think that that's unfortunate because a lot of people end up leaving the profession or they're unhappy. We have a lot of people I call boomerangs, you know, they, yeah. the yeah. grass was greener until they stood on that grass and then they come back. Um, but I think, you know, I think you have to think about those things. I think you're right. Uh, looking at the long term, a lot of people are very impatient to get there very fast. Um, so I think it's a good point to try and sit there and look at that long term. I think the other part of it is when you... When something seems too good to be true, <laughs> it probably is too good to be true. <laughs> and, you know, if you're offered something that is a big step up, you know, we've had people leave here for that and, and leave right away from where they went because they're not qualified to do that job. Mm. You know, there is a reason these things take time. And there is, you know, not that there aren't exceptions to this of people who can leapfrog, but... You know, if you want to be really good in your profession, there's a certain skill base you have to develop over time. And there aren't so many shortcuts to that. Yeah. And you talked earlier about what you were saying about opening your second office in Russia, which was really quite pioneering back in those days. And I think the confidence you had to have to do that. Um, I read in your book about the quote that you had from Eleanor Roosevelt, no one can make you feel inferior without your own consent. So I think that confidence, I mean, how do you say, how do you build that confidence? How do you um, maintain that confidence? And are there other women out there that you admire and that you, you look to for kind of that North Star? Well, I think, you know, uh, that quote um, came to me at a very important time in my life. And um, it might be interesting just to take a second to talk about it because I was helping my son, who just turned 50. He was in high school at the time. So this is live with me for a long time. He was doing <laughs> his homework. And we came across this quote. And I had just uh, begun doing, you know, working with APCO, uh, creating APCO at Arnold and Porter. And you know, I went to this small school, as I told you, and, you know, most of the lawyers there were all Ivy League graduates, brilliant people, and um, I never had, um, 
I always had a lot of self-confidence and especially in my writing skills. And all of a sudden these Ivy league lawyers are like, <laughs> you know, giving, you know, like papers coming back from school. It was giving me an anxiety attack. And I thought, uh, you know, am I good enough to do this? And then I came across this quote and I said, you know, the problem is it's me. It's not them. It's not, it's me. It's totally me. And that, um, I have used that in the back of my head at moments in my life when I have to remember that um, these self-doubts are coming from me and not because I can't let the world make me feel that way. And it's really been a very useful thing to, to feel that way, that um, if you think about it, it's true, that it's, it's really about how you, that, that confidence comes from with, within not something you try to emulate that somebody else has. And so you have to really be thinking about that all the time. I think, as you say, um, and, and uh, having a feeling of self-worth, and because and, um, mental health is definitely an issue that is growing, but I think that confidence, that inner confidence, is a very key point for people to remember that they are able to do what they, they believe they can. Um, and are there any other women that you, you've worked with or that you admire that have kind of helped shape your, your, your career and where you've achieved? I've never really thought about it that way. You know, I, I've been asked about role models before, but, you know, what I've tried to do was to um, take pieces from people, good and bad. So I've had a couple, they were male bosses, but... I've had a couple people in life where I've said, I never want to, I, I mean, I make this mental note that if I'm ever in a position like that, I will never do that. Right. And that shapes part of it. And then the other part is, you know, that, boy, that's really special or that's, you know, um, that's something I really want to think about, male and female. So there isn't like one person, but there are elements of uh, a lot, a caricature of a lot of people that. I think, um, have, have made me think about how I want to do things. Mm -hmm. Finally, I want to bring it all back to the Middle East. That we're, we're sitting here in Dubai, but obviously APCO has offices in Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and also Riyadh. And um, just in terms of where we are at the moment and also a message to women, um, how do you feel, what do you believe is, is, is is happening in the region and what are the opportunities and what are you excited about for this region? Well, as you know, I've been spending a lot of time here in the last 10 years. Um, the first thing is that, especially coming from the West, I think my impression of the women in this region, um, I, I, I want to be their biggest advocate. I just think that I've met the most fantastic, smart, professional women here that, that match any women in the world or exceed. And so, um, and that was a surprise in the beginning, but now I've, uh, I'm not only embrace it, I'd seek them out. <laughs> and, uh, I think it's been, uh, an incredible experience, uh, not just starting here in the UAE, but then, you know, certainly, uh, going to Riyadh was, um, an eye-opening experience and all the wonderful women that have been part of my life there. Um, and, and so I see this um, uh, reckoning or this realization on the part of governments here, uh, businesses, 
society that women have a really important role to play, that um, the uh, inclusion of, of women is, um, is kind of essential for uh, not only a balanced society and fair society, but a better society, and that whenever you have men and women working side by side, the result is going to be better for everybody. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Marjorie. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, and I hope that everybody gets a copy of your book and reads it and uh, learns many more lessons, and I really appreciate you giving us the time. Thank you so much. Oh, my great pleasure. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening. There's never been a better time to join MIPRA with more events and programs than ever before. So if you're not a member yet, be sure to get in touch with the team to find out more about the value of joining. Email address is community at mipra.org or register at mipra.org website. John T. will be back for the next episode, which will include a special guest from Dubai Links as they explore the art of creativity.